Good morning. It is Tuesday, December 24th. It's Christmas Eve, and you're listening to the College Football Daily, a 24-7 sports podcast dedicated to catching you up on and breaking down the day's college football news. I'm Trey Scott, and I have a confession to make. I'm feeling kind of grinchy. Feeling kind of Ebenezer Scroogey. Maybe a little Krampusy, although that's a little bit far out there for my my taste. But yeah, it's it's the holidays and yeah, Santa's coming tomorrow, but right now I kind of think we should talk about some some not fun stuff, some some lump of coal stuff, some college football teams that really disappointed us this season. College football teams that started the season ranked in the preseason AP top 25 and finished the season not ranked in the AP top 25. My Texas Longhorns are one of those teams. The biggest disappointment in college football, in my opinion. We've got a ton of others, though. There are a lot of teams on the naughty list this year. So before I sort of overdo it with the Christmas puns, I'm going to bring in college football writer Chris Hummer of 24-7 Sports. And we are going to, yeah, we're going to be a little grinchy. We're going to talk about this year's biggest disappointments. All right, so by my count, there were nine teams who were ranked in the preseason top 25, Chris, who finished not ranked in the final top 25, or I guess pre-bowl final top 25. So I'm going to run down them with you and in true Grinchian fashion tell you the worst thing about them and get your thoughts on that and see if there's a, a sort of path forward or maybe not, I don't know. We'll see. I'm not feeling very... I'm feeling kind of scroogey about it, though, about most of these teams, and especially Stanford, which started number 25, but we kind of thought there might be some flaws with this team anyway, and there sure were. Four and eight overall, number 108 in total defense, number 82 in total offense, number 81 in passing offense, number 109 in rushing offense. Stanford had no identity. Yeah, it's kind of it's crazy how different the Stanford team looked than the Stanford teams we saw with Bryce Love a couple of years ago. Uh, those were top 25 rushing offenses. Those were teams that hit you in the mouth with their offensive line. They were bigger. They were more physical. They played good defense. I don't think Stanford's had a top 50 defense since like the late 2010 or the early 2010s. Like Stanford just doesn't kind of look like Stanford anymore. And it's really weird to see I'm sure KJ Costello being hurt for much of the season didn't help Stanford's um, four and eight effort. But even with him and even with him healthy, this team wasn't going to win much more than six games. I think Stanford just kind of they're in between uh, identities, as you said. I think they've kind of lost their way. This is no longer the uh, punch you in the mouth program that it once was. It no longer plays elite defense, and we've already seen five starters transfer this offseason in the transfer portal. So it's it's kind. Do you, do you, Chris, do you take that as an indictment on where David Shaw has this program headed? I think it's probably a combination of things. It's hard to get into Stanford grad school for one, so I'm sure that contributes to it. But I, I do think if you're looking to play high-end football right now and you're looking to showcase yourself to the NFL, I think Stanford used to be a place where you did it. They really, uh, NFL scouts really respect what David Shaw does. But right now, Stanford's just not in a position to compete for championships, and I don't and I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing guys leave, look elsewhere. Yeah, they, they are not recruiting the way they could. Uh, it's better than last year, but the, the current 2020 classes in the 20s, 
So we'll see. They had a generational 2017 class and did nothing with it. Nebraska was 24th in the preseason top 25. All right, here's where you tell me that you were not all in on the Huskers in the preseason because I sure was. And my, oh, no, go I, ahead. I yeah, yeah let me eat my crow. Hype, go ahead. Why didn't you understand because that? Because this was a, what, were they a four and eight program last year? Like they had a bad uh-huh. defense. They had a freshman quarterback that everybody was excited about, but they were losing their top playmaker at receiver. Like this was a team that was still kind of building under Scott Frost. I think people just assumed because Scott Frost transformed UCF in year two that he would do the same at Nebraska, which is a much harder job, much harder place to recruit, much harder division, much harder conference. I didn't expect them to be five and seven. I'm not going to say that. I thought they'd been seven or eight games, but like the top 25 uh, hype and the Heisman hype for Adrian Martinez was super premature in my. Yeah. He was number three in the preseason Heisman odds. So their big number, their big failing point, their lump of coal, Adrian Martinez had 10 touchdowns, nine interceptions. He completed 59% of his passes down five and a half points from his freshman year. I get that he was hurt and that he missed time, but that's, that's a really depressing stat line. Uh, did, wh- go ahead and get ahead of the curve now, Chris. Expectations for Nebraska in 2020. I think they'll be, honestly, I think they'll be better. I, I would not say this is going to be a team that's competing in the Big Ten uh, West quite yet. I think they're going to be a good but team. Why not? Like, it, if Minnesota, Minnesota kind of came out of nowhere. Like, why can't Nebraska come out of nowhere? I would, I mean, <laughs> that's probably, that's a much bigger question in college football in general. Why can't my team do what Baylor did? Why can't my team do what Minnesota did? And I think you're right. Like, there are definitely circumstances where teams come out of nowhere and kind of fix everything quickly. But sometimes the build takes a little longer than that. I think Nebraska certainly has a shot to be a top 25 team. Like, they have talent. Wondell Robinson showed a lot of promise. Adrian Martinez is going to be healthier. And Mario Vidusco, quarterbacks, who's their quarterback coach, have historically been among the most accurate in the country. But like you have to it's hard to recruit at Nebraska. Nebraska's yeah. I believe like out of twenty top twenty five class right now. So things are looking up, but like they're still only gonna be in year three of what is a complete roster reshaping and system reshaping compared to what Mike Riley did. Anyone who thinks that Scott Frost is on the hot seat in the foreseeable future is, in my book, an idiot. Uh Washington State was preseason number twenty three in the AP top 25. They finished six and six. Anthony Gordon was great, Chris, but their passing defense was 126th in the country. And Mike Leach sort of was miserable as the year wore on. Yeah, this was a, this was the, I think this is kind of the worst a Mike Leach team can be explosive offensively, but just terrible defensively. Mike Leach and Tracy Clayes, their uh, defensive coordinator parted midway, parted uh, ways at mid season. Um, things didn't really get a lot better, but they got a little better down the stretch. And Washington State like was better than their record shows. They should have beaten Arizona State. They should have beaten Oregon. You can make a strong argument they should have beaten Cal. They should have beaten UCLA. This was a team with a 9-win, 10-win ceiling that simply just didn't get the job done. Like When you're 126 nationally in defense, things are going to tend to average out like this. But there was no reason for this Washington State team to be this bad. It just came down to the defense being awful. Like, you cannot give up. What did they give up, like 40 points in the fourth quarter against UCLA or something crazy like that? Like, this season just went sideways because uh, they just couldn't stop anybody. Well, speaking of sideways, Syracuse started number 22. We thought they might be the ACC's, like, second or third team. What a disaster. 5-7. and seven, They lost 63-20 to 20 
to Maryland in week two. We thought that Maryland was good uh, when that happened. <laughs> this could have been worse for the Orange, though. They won two of their last three, beat Wake Forest in overtime, crushed Duke. That snapped a four-game losing streak when they beat Duke. But talk about going in the wrong direction, and especially if you just want to look at this from a Dino Babers perspective, Chris. He was regarded in the preseason as maybe he had next for one of these big coaching jobs. And the carousel wasn't that robust this year, but a place like Florida State opened, and Babers was never even mentioned. So the the shine's kind of off him right now. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. When I was taking a closer look at Syracuse earlier today, I really thought it would be the fact that Tommy DeVito was under center instead of Eric Dungy, who was obviously a great starter for them for four seasons. Um, I really do think that made a difference, especially um, with the ability to run the football, because Syracuse really struggled with that this year, and that's something Dungy helped with. But Tommy DeVito wasn't that bad. He completed 64% of his passes, 19 touchdowns against five interceptions. It just comes down to the fact, in my opinion, Syracuse... I think going into year four of Dino Babers' regime now is still yet to field a defense that I believe has finished better than average nationally, so like 70th. Like this is a team that struggled to fix that. Dino Babers is part of that Art Bryles tree, that beer and shoot tree. He was a really hot name, but that's a that's a tough place to win. And it's hard to see them rebounding much moving forward given the way that program recruits under Dino Babers. Iowa State probably could finish ranked if they win their bowl game. I don't really think the Cyclones were a disappointment, but I can't not put them on here because they technically didn't finish uh, the regular season ranked. They were 21st. I do know that some fans are disappointed, though, because, Chris, they went 7-5, and and they began the preseason thinking they could make the Big 12 title game. They could finish maybe worse at worst third in the Big 12. They could win 10 games. But instead... They extend their losing streak versus Iowa to five years. They lost by two points at Baylor in September, by one point at Oklahoma. They lost by 10 points in the very sobering finale versus Kansas State. I just, it's a disappointment in that you thought Iowa State was next up in the Big 12 if an upstart was going to topple Oklahoma or Texas to make the Big 12 title game, and instead it was Baylor. Yeah, if I'm an Iowa State fan, I'm disappointed. I'm as big of a Matt Campbell fan and a proponent as anybody. Not as me. Uh, Not as big as me. Well, that, that's fair. I know Trey's got his Cyclone socks on right now. But um, the Cyclones should have beaten Baylor. They were down 20 to nothing in the fourth quarter. Like, if anybody was going to be Baylor this year, it probably should have been Iowa State, at least if you look at what uh, Iowa State put on paper and kind of the way the Big 12 unfolded, the Texas kind of collapsing. Iowa State season would have changed if they would have beaten Baylor that week. Iowa State season would have changed if they beat Iowa in week two in a game they should have won. I know that game was crazy with the rain delays and everything that kind of came with that, but you can't lose to your rival that often if you're going to be a top 25 level team. And Iowa State, frankly, should have probably beaten Oklahoma given the way that we saw them play in the fourth quarter. Those are three games that would have probably put Iowa State in the Big 12 title game, and it would have completely changed our perception of the program if that team reaches a Big 12 title under Matt Campbell. I think this was a major missed opportunity for the Cyclones. That's a good way to put it, missed opportunity. Michigan State started 18th. I don't even have words for them. Number 110 in total offense, number 110 in rushing offense. Your best player is suspended for failed PED test. Mark D'Antonio doesn't make any real staff changes last offseason, comes back to bite them, handles it like a jerk. In his in his media availabilities, I I I don't see a path going forward for them, Chris. I kind of don't really 
even want to spend too much time on them other than the fact that it's sort of a miserable state of existence for them right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I can always see a path forward for Michigan State. That's a program that has shown under Mark. I mean, they were in the playoff, what, like four years ago? Like, we're not that far removed from that. But I think loyalty sometimes bites coaches in the butt, and that's what we've seen at Michigan State. Instead of, like, reshuffling a staff or, like, hiring a new offensive coordinator to kind of change the dynamic of that offense, which has been anemic for a few years now. Uh, Mark D'Antonio chose to just move around positions. He was like, you can be a QB coach instead of being the running back coach. You can be the OC instead of being the wide receivers coach. And I wish it was more complicated than that, but it's exactly what he did. And like for a team that returned as many starters the last two years as Michigan State did, this is kind of inexcusable. But I also don't think it's, I don't think it's unfixable based on what we've seen from Mark D'Antonio historically, but it's, it's certainly an uphill battle given who's in that division. He's got to find a quarterback and there is not one good candidate on that roster. Washington. I don't even know what happened to Washington. They were 13th in the preseason. What, you know, one of the Pac-12 favorites. They went 7-5. And, and here's the thing. They played Utah close by five points lost. Played Oregon close by four points lost. Both of those games were in Seattle. Okay, so that's, that's I mean, like, fans won't love that, but that's sort of excusable. But then you lose to Stanford by 10. You lost to Cal in week two. Cal was all right early on, so it's whatever. You lost to Colorado. The problem is you didn't win any games that were seen as like a toss-up or where Washington maybe not not should not be able to win. And then they lost games that they shouldn't have lost. You know what I mean? Like that's that's how you get to seven and five without really any massive flaws. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um Chris Peterson teams are usually the pro the teams that win these games, these close games that come down uh, sometimes coaching and kind of a lack of mental errors, but you saw Washington lose those games all year. I don't think it helped that Jacob Eason was quite frankly, like really inconsistent against elite competition. Like Washington should have won some of those games. If Jacob Eason would have played a little bit better, I realized he played pretty well against Oregon, but against Oregon and Utah, both he threw really, really ill-timed interceptions that were just kind of inexcusable for a quarterback that we think of as a potential first round talent. Um, Overall, like Washington was just one of the weirder teams this year. I lump Washington and Texas together in that way, and I'm, I know we'll, we'll get, get to Texas there. Later. We'll get there. Uh, yeah, I I think Washington will be fine under Jimmy Lake. I don't think this is like time to panic. There, they've recruited really well. Jimmy Lake is one of the more energetic coaches in the country, but it was certainly an odd season and yet another missed opportunity in a Pac-12 North division that, in my opinion, was open for the taking if Washington played just a little bit better. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to launch into Texas A&M and Texas. You guys don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. All right, Chris. Let's go ahead and tell everyone. We both attended the University of Texas together. That's where we, I guess, it's where we met um, at, at the student newspaper. So we're going to have some fun talking about Texas A&M and Texas as college football's two biggest disappointments of the 2019 season. We'll start with the Aggies who were number 12, we all know that they went seven and five and we all know that they played three number one teams. They lost and they played then number eight Auburn and then number four Georgia. And that's okay. But your best win in year two of a coach who's paid $70 million over 10 years was 49 to 30 over Mississippi state. 75 million, Trey, 75. 75. Don't lose that extra five mil. 
the, uh, Texas A&M can put the lipstick on this pig however they want to. This was not a good season. No, it was it was it was a disappointment, and I don't think it showed a lot of progress. I people are going to throw out that three number one team stat like like it's excusable for Texas A&M to lose, but I would point out that they lost those games by a combined seventy six points. It wasn't it Ooh. wasn't like they lost these games close. It wasn't like. AM was particularly competitive in any of these contests. The only one of those like five ranked losses they'll throw out that they were actually close in was Auburn. And even that Georgia, game, Georgia out. Was Let's give them Georgia. Give them Georgia too. They were close in Georgia. But that was also like another late comeback. Georgia was total in total control of that game until late in the fourth quarter. And the only reason they were in that game is because Georgia's inept on offense right now, or at least was in the last month of the season. I, I still I like Jimbo Fisher's not a bad coach. They're recruiting exceptionally. They have another top five class coming in potentially. Like I think the future is bright at Texas A&M, but that offensive line was terrible this year. Kellen Mond seemed to regress, which is obviously due to part in fact that the offensive line was terrible. But there are some things with Jimbo Fisher that I think really concern you. He had the slowest paced football team in the FBS this year. He goes for it on fourth down at the lowest rate of any team in the FBS. His offense kind of seems like it's a little bit stuck in 2011, which is fine. Like if you have elite talent, which Texas A&M does, but as we've talked about with Georgia in the past, I think it kind of narrows your um, kind of path forward to championships potentially. And the fact that he has Kellen Mond, one of the more athletic quarterbacks in the country and Mond does very little in the read option or with his legs, I think says a lot about like, kind of the stubbornness Jimbo Fisher has within um, his system and what he believes in. Like Texas A&M could still potentially compete for championships. I believe they're fully talented enough to do so. But I think Jimbo Fisher is going to probably need to make some changes here in the next couple of years if he really wants A&M to compete with the LSUs and the Alabamas and the Auburns of that division. Yeah, they actually should have a pretty good team in 2020. They return just about everybody. They only lose, I think, two or three guys. So we'll see. There will be a lot of pressure. Obviously not a hot seat with that fully guaranteed buyout or whatever. But And I like Jimbo Fisher. I just uh, He's got a ways to go to, to prove that contract was worth it. Okay. To the Texas Longhorns were number 10. We thought they were back. We know they weren't. They were number 25 in pass defense. Number, sorry, number 95 in pass defense, which is second worst in the Big 12. Do not sit here and throw out injuries. Like, do not do that. Uh, Tom I mean, Herman, injuries played a part. Tom Herman fired both coordinators. Texas competed against itself last year to offer Tom Herman an extension and more money, thus making his buyout $20 million. If it weren't for that, I'm not 100% positive he's coming back for year four. But he is. And the mood around the program is pretty sour. I will say this about Tom Herman. Like, Tom Herman, what, two years ago at this point, two and a half years ago, when the coaching carousel was turning after the 2017 season, was the hottest name in college football. Like, this is, Texas, that's four years ago. That was, yeah, three years ago at this point. Texas, at that time, at that time, hired the slam dunk hire of the coaching carousel. In year two, Tom Herman won 10 games and beat Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. Like, that happened just last year. I think people who are calling for his head are severely overreacting. Like, I would say that. At the same time, Texas was really bad this year. There's no question. Like, Texas was far too talented, especially offensively, to fall the way they did. To go 75. I think the defensive, defensive injury certainly mattered. I know you would push back against that. Like, 
Texas had the youngest defense in the Big 12 coming into the season, and it got extra, extra young when about six starters were out by week three. So that certainly affected the way Todd Orlando, who is now fired, called the games and was forced to call the games. But it doesn't really matter. Like if Matt Rule, who inherited Baylor, like an absolute mess, can go 11-2 and two and compete for a Big 12 championship in year three, Texas, no matter who it has in the field, should be in that conversation as well, and they weren't. And I guess at the end of the day, that's an indictment on Tom Herman where the program is. It's, yeah, it's, I don't, I don't know if he, I, apparently the locker room unrest is a very real thing. So, you know, I'll let our experts at Horns 24-7 handle that however they want and when they handle it. But, you know, Tom Herman is a tough guy to play for. And, no question. Yeah, right? And, and when you're not winning... That's even tougher. So, and I, I would, I'd point this out really quick. The way Tom Herman practices, I think, certainly, kind of raises some of these injury questions. Yeah, you've written like about Tom that before. So tell, yeah. tell everyone about that. Tom Herman is a believes wholeheartedly in physical pad popping practices. He practices uh, with full pads as much as the NCAA allows it. He wants as much contact as possible. He believes in that as kind of the foundational factor of not only a tough football team, but a team that tackles well. And at Houston, like you could argue in year two, his kind of mandate on that cost Houston an opportunity to compete for another New Year's Six Bowl. His best players were out for a lot of the season, like injuries piled up continuously. And we're seeing that at Texas, like kids get injured a lot under Tom Herman. He has a, this is probably a different conversation, but there is a history of concussions for people playing under Tom Herman that I think certainly is prevalent at a lot of schools. But there have just been there's been a really extended injury history under Tom based in large part on how he practices. And during a season in which Texas suffered injury after injury this season, I certainly think those hits in practice add up. All right. Well, I feel grinchy enough for the day. So, Chris, happy holidays and Thank you for partaking in this exercise of misery with us. If there was one program on all of these disappointments who has the best chance of turning it around, is it? Like, just real quick, who is it? Texas? Texas. It's Texas. <laughs> so the Texas biggest disappointment. Be a top yeah. 10 or 15 team next year, no question. The biggest Texas. disappointment of the 2019 season could also have the best turnaround of the 2020 season which is just further proof that college football is exhausting and beautiful all at the same time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Chris. Hopefully these teams will have happier times next season. Maybe they'll wake up to something nice in their stocking. And, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be in a better mood. Tomorrow I'm going to talk to 24-7 Sports' Shay Dixon about one of the most heartwarming stories in college football. So look forward to that. Until then, that is going to do it for today's for Christmas Eve's episode of the College Football Daily. If you appreciate what we're doing, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. For Chris Hummer, for Connor Tapp, for our producer, Tawny Levin, I'm Trey Scott. See you Wednesday. <laughs>